Chapter Eleven of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Eleven. Korak, returning from the hunt, heard the jabbering of the excited monkeys. He knew that something was seriously amiss. Hista, the snake, had doubtless coiled his slimy folds about some careless Manu. The youth hastened ahead. The monkeys were Miriam's friends. He would help them if he could. He traveled rapidly along the middle terrace. In the tree by Miriam's shelter he deposited his trophies of the hunt and called aloud to her. There was no answer. He dropped quickly to a lower level. She might be hiding from him. Upon a great branch where Miriam often swung at indolent ease he saw Geeka propped against the tree's great bowl. What could it mean? Miriam had never left Geeka thus alone before. Korak picked up the doll and tucked it in his belt. He called again, more loudly, but no Miriam answered his summons. In the distance the jabbering of the excited Manus was growing less distinct. Could their excitement be in any way connected with Miriam's disappearance? The bare thought was enough. Without waiting for Akut, who was coming slowly along some distance in his rear, Korak swung rapidly in the direction of the chattering mob but a few minutes sufficed to overtake the rearmost. At sight of him they fell to screaming and pointing downward ahead of them, and a moment later Korak came within sight of the cause of their rage. The youth's heart stood still in terror as he saw the limp body of the girl across the hairy shoulders of a great ape. That she was dead he did not doubt, and in that instant there arose within him a something which he did not try to interpret, nor could have had he tried but all at once the whole world seemed centered in that tender, graceful body, that frail little body, hanging so pitifully limp and helpless across the bulging shoulders of the brute. He knew then that little Miriam was his world, his sun, his moon, his stars. With her going had gone all light and warmth and happiness. A groan escaped his lips, and after that a series of hideous roars, more bestial than the beasts, as he dropped plummet-like in mad descent toward the perpetrator of this hideous crime. The bull-ape turned at the first note of this new and menacing voice, and as he turned a new flame was added to the rage and hatred of the killer, for he saw that the creature before him was none other than the king-ape which had driven him away from the great anthropoids to whom he had looked for friendship and asylum. Dropping the body of the girl to the ground, the bull turned to battle anew for possession of his expensive prize, but this time he looked for an easy conquest. He too recognized Korak. Had he not chased him away from the amphitheater without even having to lay a fang or paw upon him? With lowered head and bulging shoulders he rushed headlong for the smooth-skinned creature who was daring to question his right to his prey. They met head-on like two charging bulls, to go down together tearing and striking. Korak forgot his knife. Rage and bloodlust such as his could be satisfied only by the feel of hot flesh between rending fangs, by the gush of new life-blood against his bare skin, for though he did not realize it, Korak, the killer, was fighting for something more compelling than hate or revenge. He was a great male fighting another male for a she of his own kind. So impetuous was the attack of the man-ape that he found his hold before the anthropoid could prevent him. A savage hold with strong jaws closed upon a pulsing jugular, and there he clung with closed eyes, 
while his fingers sought another hold upon the shaggy throat. It was then that Miriam opened her eyes. At the sight before her they went wide. Korak, she cried, Korak, my Korak, I knew that you would come. Kill him, Korak, kill him. And with flashing eyes and heaving bosom the girl coming to her feet ran to Korak's side to encourage him. Nearby lay the killer's spear where he had flung it as he charged the ape. The girl saw it and snatched it up. No faintness overcame her in the face of this battle primeval at her feet. For her there was no hysterical reaction from the nerve strain of her own personal encounter with the bull. She was excited, but cool and entirely unafraid. Her Korak was battling with another Mangani that would have stolen her, but she did not seek the safety of an overhanging bough there to watch the battle from afar, as would a she-Mangani. Instead she placed the point of Korak's spear against the bull-ape's side and plunged the sharp point deep into the savage heart. Korak had not needed her aid, for the great bull had been already as good as dead, with the blood gushing from his torn jugular. But Korak rose smiling, with a word of approbation for his helper. How tall and fine she was! Had she changed suddenly within the few hours of his absence, or had his battle with the ape affected his vision? He might have been looking at Miriam through new eyes for the many startling and wonderful surprises his gaze revealed. How long it had been since he had found her in her father's village, a little Arab girl, he did not know, for time is of no import in the jungle, and so he had kept no track of the passing days. But he realized, as he looked upon her now, that she was no longer such a little girl as he had first seen playing with Geeka beneath the great tree just within the palisade. The change must have been very gradual to have eluded his notice until now, and what was it that had caused him to realize it so suddenly? His gaze wandered from the girl to the body of the dead bull. For the first time there flashed to his understanding the explanation of the reason for the girl's attempted abduction. Korak's eyes went wide, and then they closed to narrow slits of rage as he stood glaring down upon the abysmal brute at his feet. When next his glance rose to Miriam's face, a slow flush suffused his own. Now, indeed, was he looking upon her through new eyes, the eyes of a man looking upon a maid. Akut had come up just as Miriam had speared Korak's antagonist. The exaltation of the old ape was keen. He strutted, stiff-legged and truculent, about the body of the fallen enemy. He growled and upcurved his long, flexible lip. His hair bristled. He was paying no attention to Miriam and Korak. Back in the uttermost recesses of his little brain something was stirring, something which the sight and smell of the great bull had aroused. The outward manifestation of the germinating idea was one of bestial rage, but the inner sensations were pleasurable in the extreme. The scent of the great bull and the sight of his huge and hairy figure had awakened in the heart of Akut a longing for the companionship of his own kind. So Korak was not alone undergoing a change. And Miriam, she was a woman. It is woman's divine right to love. Always she had loved Korak. He was her big brother. Miriam alone underwent no change. She was still happy in the companionship of her Korak. She still loved him, as a sister loves an indulgent brother. And she was very, very proud of him. In all the jungle there was no other creature so strong, so handsome 
or so brave. Korak came close to her. There was a new light in his eyes as she looked up into them, but she did not understand it. She did not realize how close they were to maturity, nor aught of all the difference in their lives the look in Korak's eyes might mean. Miriam, he whispered, and his voice was husky as he laid a brown hand upon her bare shoulder. Miriam! Suddenly he crushed her to him. She looked up into his face, laughing, and then he bent and kissed her full upon the mouth. Even then she did not understand. She did not recall ever having been kissed before. It was very nice. Miriam liked it. She thought it was Korak's way of showing how glad he was that the great ape had not succeeded in running away with her. She was glad, too, so she put her arms about the killer's neck and kissed him again and again. Then, discovering the doll in his belt, she transferred it to her own possession, kissing it as she had kissed Korak. Korak wanted her to say something. He wanted to tell her how he loved her, but the emotion of his love choked him, and the vocabulary of the Mangani was limited. There came a sudden interruption. It was from Akut, a sudden low growl, no louder than those he had been giving vent to the while he pranced about the dead bull, nor half so loud, in fact, but of a timber that bore straight to the perceptive faculties of the jungle beast ingrained in Korak. It was a warning. Korak looked quickly up from the glorious vision of the sweet face so close to his. Now his other faculties awoke. His ears, his nostrils were on the alert. Something was coming. The killer moved to Akut's side. Miriam was just behind them. The three stood like carved statues gazing into the leafy tangle of the jungle. The noise that had attracted their attention increased, and presently a great ape broke through the underbrush a few paces from where they stood. The beast halted at sight of them. He gave a warning grunt back over his shoulder, and a moment later, coming cautiously, another bull appeared. He was followed by others, both bulls and females with young, until two score hairy monsters stood glaring at the three. It was the tribe of the dead king ape. Akut was the first to speak. He pointed to the body of the dead bull. Korak, mighty fighter, has killed your king, he grunted. There is none greater in all the jungle than Korak, son of Tarzan. Now Korak is king. What bull is greater than Korak? It was a challenge to any bull who might care to question Korak's right to the kingship. The apes jabbered and chattered and growled among themselves for a time. At last a young bull came slowly forward, rocking upon his short legs, bristling, growling, terrible. The beast was enormous, and in the full prime of his strength he belonged to that almost extinct species for which white men have long sought upon the information of the natives of the more inaccessible jungles. Even the natives seldom see these great hairy primordial men. Korak advanced to meet the monster. He too was growling. In his mind a plan was revolving. To close with this powerful, untired brute after having just passed through a terrific battle with another of his kind would have been to tempt defeat. He must find an easier way to victory. Crouching, he prepared to meet the charge which he knew would soon come. Nor did he have long to wait. His antagonist paused only for sufficient time to permit him to recount for the edification of the audience and the confounding of Korak a brief resume of his former victories, of his prowess, 
and of what he was about to do to this puny Tarmangani. Then he charged. With clutching fingers and wide-open jaws he came down upon the waiting Korak with the speed of an express train. Korak did not move until the great arm swung to embrace him. Then he dropped low beneath them, swung a terrific right to the side of the beast's jaw as he sidestepped his rushing body, and swinging quickly about stood ready over the fallen ape where he sprawled upon the ground. It was a surprised anthropoid that attempted to scramble to its feet. Froth flecked its hideous lips, red were the little eyes, blood-curdling roars tumbled from the deep chest, but it did not reach its feet. The killer stood waiting above it, and the moment that the hairy chin came upon the proper level, another blow that would have felled an ox sent the ape over backward. Again and again the beast struggled to arise, but each time the mighty Tarmangani stood waiting with ready fist and pile-driver blow to bowl him over. Weaker and weaker became the efforts of the bull. Blood smeared his face and breast. A red stream trickled from nose and mouth. The crowd that had cheered him on at first with savage yells now jeered him. Their approbation was for the Tarmangani. "'Kagoda?' inquired Korak as he sent the bull down once more. Again the stubborn bull essayed to scramble to his feet. Again the killer struck him a terrific blow. Again he put the question. Kagoda, have you had enough? For a moment the bull lay motionless. Then from between battered lips came the single word, Kagoda. Then rise and go back among your people, said Korak. I do not wish to be king among people who once drove me from them. Keep your own ways, and we will keep ours. When we meet we may be friends, but we shall not live together. An old bull came slowly toward the killer. You have killed our king he said. You have defeated him who would have been king. You could have killed him had you wished. What shall we do for a king? Korak turned toward Akut. There is your king, he said. But Akut did not want to be separated from Korak, although he was anxious enough to remain with his own kind. He wanted Korak to remain too. He said as much. The youth was thinking of Miriam of what would be best and safest for her. If Akut went away with the apes, there would be but one to watch over and protect her. On the other hand, were they to join the tribe, he would never feel safe to leave Miriam behind when he went out to hunt, for the passions of the ape-folk are not ever well controlled. Even a female might develop an insane hatred for the slender white girl and kill her during Korak's absence. "'We will live near you,' he said at last. When you change your hunting ground, we will change ours, Miriam and I, and so remain near you, but we shall not dwell among you. Akut raised objections to this plan. He did not wish to be separated from Korak. At first he refused to leave his human friend for the companionship of his own kind, but when he saw the last of the tribe wandering off into the jungle again, and his glance rested upon the lithe figure of the dead king's young mate as she cast admiring glances at her lord's successor, the call of blood would not be denied. With a farewell glance toward his beloved Korak, he turned and followed the she-ape into the labyrinthine mazes of the wood. After Korak had left the village of the blacks following his last thieving expedition, the screams of his victim and those of the other women and children had brought the warriors in from the forest and the river. 
great was the excitement and hot was the rage of the men when they learned that the white devil had again entered their homes frightened their women and stolen arrows and ornaments and food even their superstitious fear of this weird creature who hunted with a huge bull-ape was overcome in their desire to wreak vengeance upon him and rid themselves for good and all of the menace of his presence in the jungle and so it was that a score of the fleetest and most doughty warriors of the tribe set out in pursuit of korak and akut but a few minutes after they had left the scene of the killer's many depredations the youth and the ape had travelled slowly and with no precautions against a successful pursuit nor was their attitude of careless indifference to the blacks at all remarkable so many similar raids had gone unpunished that the two had come to look upon the negroes with contempt the return journey led them straight up wind the result being that the scent of their pursuers was borne away from them so they proceeded upon their way in total ignorance of the fact that tireless trackers but little less expert in the mysteries of woodcraft than themselves were dogging their trail with savage insistence the little party of warriors was led by kovudu the chief a middle-aged savage of exceptional cunning and bravery it was he who first came within sight of the quarry which they had followed for hours by the mysterious methods of their almost uncanny powers of observation intuition and even scent kovudu and his men came upon korak akut and miriam after the killing of the king ape the noise of the combat having led them at last straight to their quarry the sight of the slender white girl had amazed the savage chief and held him gazing at the trio for a moment before ordering his warriors to rush out upon their prey. In that moment it was that the great apes came, and again the blacks remained awestruck witnesses to the palaver and the battle between Korak and the young bull. But now the apes had gone, and the white youth and the white maid stood alone in the jungle. One of Kovudu's men leaned close to the ear of his chief. "'Look,' he whispered, and pointed to something that dangled at the girl's side. When my brother and I were slaves in the village of the Sheik, my brother made that thing for the Sheik's little daughter. She played with it always and called it after my brother, whose name is Geeka. Just before we escaped, someone came and struck down the Sheik, stealing his daughter away. If this is she, the Sheik will pay you well for her return. Korak's arm had again gone around the shoulders of Miriam. Love raced hot through his young veins civilization was but a half-remembered state london as remote as ancient rome in all the world there were but they two korak the killer and miriam his mate again he drew her close to him and covered her willing lips with his hot kisses and then from behind him broke a hideous bedlam of savage war-cries and a score of shrieking blacks were upon them korak turned to give battle miriam with her own light spear stood by his side an avalanche of barbed missiles flew about them one pierced korak's shoulder another his leg and he went down miriam was unscathed for the blacks had intentionally spared her now they rushed forward to finish korak and made good the girl's capture but as they came there came also from another point in the jungle the great akut and at his heels the huge bulls of his new kingdom snarling and roaring they rushed upon the black warriors when they saw the mischief they had already wrought kovudu realizing the danger of coming to close quarters with these mighty ape-men seized miriam 
and called upon his warriors to retreat. For a time the apes followed them, and several of the blacks were badly mauled, and one killed before they succeeded in escaping. Nor would they have gotten off thus easily had Akut not been more concerned with the condition of the wounded Korak than with the fate of the girl upon whom he had always looked as more or less of an interloper and an unquestioned burden. Korak lay bleeding and unconscious when Akut reached his side. The great ape tore the heavy spears from his flesh, licked the wounds, and then carried his friend to the lofty shelter that Korak had constructed for Miriam. Further than this the brute could do nothing. Nature must accomplish the rest, unaided, or Korak must die. He did not die, however. For days he lay helpless with fever, while Akut and the apes hunted close by that they might protect him from such birds and beasts as might reach his lofty retreat. Occasionally Akut brought him juicy fruits, which helped to slake his thirst and allay his fever, and little by little his powerful constitution overcame the effects of the spear thrusts, the wounds healed, and his strength returned. All during his rational moments, as he had lain upon the soft furs which lined Miriam's nest, he had suffered more acutely from fears for Miriam than from the pain of his own wounds. For her he must live, for her he must regain his strength that he might set out in search of her. What had the blacks done to her? Did she still live, or had they sacrificed her to their lust for torture and human flesh? Korak almost trembled with terror as the most hideous possibilities of the girl's fate suggested themselves to him out of his knowledge of the customs of Kovudu's tribe. The days dragged their weary lengths along, but at last he had sufficiently regained his strength to crawl from the shelter and make his way unaided to the ground. Now he lived more upon raw meat, for which he was entirely dependent on Akut's skill and generosity. With the meat diet his strength returned more rapidly, and at last he felt that he was fit to undertake the journey to the village of the blacks. End of chapter 11